You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. The last few weeks, uh, we've been making our way through Acts 11, 10, uh, 8, 9, 10, 11, I should say. We've seen, in those chapters specifically, a lot of wins for the early church. Uh, Philip's ministry in Samaria, many Samaritans come to follow Jesus. Then he has this encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. And then in chapters 9 through 11, two very different but equally remarkable conversions. There's Saul, the, the Jewish Pharisee and persecutor of the church. He comes to follow Christ. And then there's Cornelius, the Roman Gentile centurion. And the gospel, we see has moved now outward from Jerusalem to Samaria to Caesarea and then to Antioch, as we talked about last week. But as we arrive in chapter 12, we once again see the cost of this. As the first of the 12 apostles is martyred, and as Peter again finds himself in prison, what will come of the church? How will they respond to this apparent setback? I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. And it opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, 
And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Eternal God, in the reading of the scripture this morning, we ask that your word would be heard. In the meditations of all of our hearts this morning, we ask that your word would be known. And in the faithfulness of all of our lives, today and this week and in the days to come, may your word be shown. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This chapter unfolds uh, in three parts. There's a death, a deliverance, and then another death, albeit a very different one. So we'll spend the rest of our time looking at, at those three things, a death, a deliverance, and then another death. So first, a death. After a, a few chapters focused elsewhere, Luke, the author of this book, the historian, the theologian, he returns to the story of the church in Jerusalem. And what we see right away is that there has been a significant change of attitude toward the apostles in Jerusalem. If you've been with us in this series, then you might remember, in the earliest days of the church, the apostles enjoyed a lot of favor with the people. They gathered publicly in Solomon's portico at the temple. The Jewish religious leaders, of course, did not appreciate them and imprisoned them prior to this moment, but they had a lot of public favor. Even when persecution then broke out after Stephen, one of the early deacons, Stephen was stoned to death, the apostles didn't appear to be targeted or impacted by that persecution. That, that persecution seemed more directed at Greek-speaking Jews or the Hellenistic Jews. Now, however, Acts 12, the apostles are being targeted. King Herod, as we read there, begins laying violent hands on some who belong to the church. This Herod is Herod Agrippa. Uh, he was one of the grandsons of Herod the Great. Uh, that's the Herod that tried to kill Jesus as a baby. And Herod Agrippa, the, the one from Acts 12, he's a nephew of Herod Antipas, that's the Herod who played a role in Jesus' trial uh, leading up to his crucifixion. So I joked a couple weeks ago how there was one guy who kind of ruined the name Ananias for everybody else, but all the Herods are bad. <laughs> all of them are bad. There's not a good Herod in the Bible. Uh, the Herods, they, they built some incredible things, some incredible infrastructure, some incredible things, but they were violent, ruthless, wicked men. This Herod, Herod Agrippa, uh, is trying to gain some popularity with the Jewish people there in Jerusalem. Having grown up in Rome, Herod Agrippa was a childhood friend with two boys that as they became men, later became emperors of the entire Roman Empire. And so naturally, the, the Jewish people would have despised his Roman upbringing. They would have despised how he represented Roman occupation and the subjugation of Israel. Now, at the same time that's happening, there is now widespread inclusion of Gentiles into 
this new movement into Jesus' church. As we've been seeing in Acts, Jewish people who believe the gospel struggled with that immensely. They struggled with this new idea of including Gentiles into the people of God. How much more did Jewish men and women who did not see Jesus as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of all of these things, struggle? The, gen- the Gentile inclusion was that much more scandalous, was that much more undesirable to many of the Jewish people there in Jerusalem. And so these two things coincide in a way that spells trouble for the apostles. Herod can assert control, dominance, over this emerging movement in a way that simultaneously curries favor with a subjugated people. So one of the 12 is put to death. James, the brother of John, one of the two sons of Zebedee, one of the two sons of thunder, as they're sometimes called in scripture, is killed with the sword. And it's a little shocking that James's death is recorded in one verse in Scripture. Not even a complete sentence, not even a whole sentence. Remember who this is. Jesus had his 12, but he also had his three. He had his inner circle, and James was one of those three. James was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, when he brought her back to life, He allowed no one to enter that room with him except Peter and John and James. When Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked three of the apostles to accompany him a little bit further and to keep watch and to pray, and James was one of those three. In other words, James is not a minor character in Jesus' life or Jesus' story, but his death, his martyrdom, feels a little bit like a footnote. Whatever it feels like in the book of Acts, it is not a footnote in the eyes of God. Precious in the Lord's sight is the death of his saints, the psalmist writes. And James here in this moment adds his voice to Stephen's, and he adds his voice to countless others in the century since, who the book of of Revelation depicts as saints under the altar of God, crying out to him, how long, Lord? How long? How long until you complete your saving work on earth? How long until you bring judgment to those who persist in rebellion against you? He will not have to wait long for God's judgment against Herod. But before we we move on in Acts 12, consider this. You too will die. You too will die. This life is a vapor, a mist that soon passes away. And when that day comes, it's not the kind of death you die. It's not how exciting or forgettable your death is. It's not whether your death becomes a feature story somewhere or just a footnote. The only thing that really matters about your death, about my death, is who you belong to when it comes. Blessed are those that die in the Lord. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. James is the first of the 12 apostles to rest from his labors. And compared to the others who go on to live really hard lives, and almost all of them suffer a martyr's death at some point later, James, you can think of it this way, James actually gets to retire early. He gets to rest earlier than the other 11. And as we see next in Acts 12, his experience in this moment is very different from what happens with Peter. So second, let's talk about Peter's deliverance. 
Peter's deliverance. James's murder pleases the Jewish people. And so Herod seemingly relatively quickly goes out and arrests Peter. Uh, But because that happens during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Peter is put in prison until after Passover. They were not going to conduct official business and trials and executions during that feast week. It's really ironic, though, that during the celebration of God's freedom, of his liberation of his people from slavery in Egypt, Herod is now imprisoning one of God's chosen apostles. Herod's plan evidently was to make more of a public spectacle of Peter than he did of James. Probably some kind of show trial and then a public execution. From what we read here in Acts chapter 12, Peter expected to die. He expected to die. He sits in prison for at least a few days waiting. And the night before his impending death, he is chained to two soldiers with two more guarding the door. Peter, as we read though, does not meet the same fate as James. God miraculously intervenes and delivers Peter from prison. And it's so surreal as it's playing out that Peter doesn't think it's really happening. He thinks he's seeing a vision. He thinks maybe he's just having a dream where this is happening. Notice, though, that that when God sends this angel to deliver Peter, Peter is fast asleep. He's not anxious. He's not, as you might imagine, as would be understandable, fretting away what he thinks is his last night on earth. God gives to his beloved sleep. And Peter here is experiencing the rest of one who is confident that he belongs to God in life or in death. This is no dream or or vision, however. When the angel leads him out of the prison and then departs and leaves, Peter comes to himself, he kind of snaps out of it, and he says, wow, God has intervened again. He's intervened again, just like when the apostles were freed from prison in Acts chapter 5, when they were put there under the command of the high priest. God has again delivered, and Peter will not face death in this moment. He goes to Mary's house, where many people are gathered. And we get this humorous moment in the midst of a fairly weighty sequence of events, where Peter knocks and calls out at the gate. Rhoda, the servant girl there at this home, gets so excited, she just leaves him there. She leaves there. She forgets to open the door, and Peter has to keep on knocking. Uh, Lately, my kids have been asking me to tell uh, stories to them about my growing up years, about when I was in high school and when I was in college, uh, which is kind of a dangerous prospect for kids to ask you that that question, especially when your kids are young. I'm also increasingly grateful that not everyone walked around with an HD camera in their pocket. Uh, When I was in those years of my life, that would be harder to explain in a nuanced way. Uh, if it was on film. But Rhoda forgetting to open the door in Acts 12, it's one of those details, it's one of these stories that could only come from an eyewitness account. It's almost like it became a running joke and part of that repertoire of the classic stories that the early church would just tell together when they were sitting and recounting things that had happened before. Like, hey, remember when God miraculously delivered Peter from prison right before he was going to get executed? Well, Rhoda here... Rhoda left him locked out in the courtyard for a while, wouldn't even open the door. To her credit, though, Rhoda's response is way better than everybody else's in that home. She responds with joy. The others are skeptical. They think she's lost her mind. 
And that brings up a part of Acts 12 that was incredibly convicting to me as I studied it this week. How do I respond when God actually answers my prayers? How do you respond when God actually answers your prayers? Did you notice as we read, this is a praying church. This is a praying people. Peter's in prison and immediately, verse 5, earnest prayer is made for Peter. And then that very night, verse 12, they are gathered in Mary's house. What are they doing? Praying together. And God answers their prayer. But their initial response is like, nah, Rhoda, you're crazy. That's not happening. And it would be even more humorous if it weren't so convicting. Is this not how we're inclined to approach prayer ourselves? We pray for God to do something incredible, something that clearly requires his divine intervention. Like when we pray for someone to be healed, or like when we pray for God to bring his justice and his mercy to bear in this world in ways that we desperately need. Or even as we pray together, often as a church, in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. When God actually does one of those things, like the people in Mary's house, are we not often skeptical and shocked when God answers that prayer? God forgive our lack of expectancy in prayer for taming and for conditioning our prayers out of fear of disappointment or out of skepticism and cynicism that God hears and cares or out of doubt that God really is a good father who delights to give good gifts to his children. With these Christians and with Christians in every age, we can say, I believe, help my unbelief. And few places in our lives expose our unbelief more than how we pray, how we temper our prayers, and then how we respond in those times when God actually answers in a miraculous way. Where are you longing for the miraculous intervention of God? In your own life? In the life of someone you love? In this world? Pray as though God might actually answer and then be ready to rejoice like Rhoda if he does. Peter here doesn't stick around Mary's house for for very long. Uh, After explaining what happened, he asked them to share the news with the other leaders of the Jerusalem church. The James that he mentions there in verse 17 is actually a different James. It's James, the brother of Jesus. So the James that died at the beginning of Acts 12, that's James, the brother of John, one of the 12. James, the brother of Jesus, verse 17, he actually, from this moment on, appears to become the head of the church there in Jerusalem. As for Peter, that same night, he departs for another unspecified place. Uh, Some tradition has suggested that he went to Rome. Others, tradition suggests he went to Antioch, the city that we learned about last week, and we'll see again next week in chapter 13. We don't know for sure. Wherever he goes, we don't hear from Peter for a couple years. What we do know is that in this moment where it seemed like his life might very well come to an end, God delivered him. God preserved his life for what ended up being another couple decades. And God also then brought relief to the other apostles, to the other Christians who remained in Jerusalem because Herod soon met his own end. So third, let's look at this other death. We looked at a death, a deliverance, and now another death. When morning comes, 
Uh, the soldiers have no idea what happened to Peter. He, he's just gone. He's gone. So after this unsuccessful search, Herod actually orders the death of these sentries, of these soldiers. Roman law stipulated that a guard who allowed a prisoner to escape was liable to the same penalty that that prisoner would have faced. Herod then leaves Jerusalem, leaves Judea for Caesarea. And while there, as we read, the people of Tyre and Sidon visit. Uh, Herod has been angry with them, uh, and they can't afford for Herod to be angry with them for very long because they depend on him. They depend on Herod's land for food. Eager to be restored to his favor, the people there host what is apparently a public ceremony of reconciliation. And so Herod puts on his robes. The historian Josephus adds this detail that his robes were made of silver, which uh, in the sun gave Herod kind of a shining aura around him. And so perhaps because of that, but also certainly to flatter him and to try to regain his favor, the people attribute divinity to Herod. They say after he delivers a speech, they say, the voice of a god and not of a man. Arrogance is deadly, especially when you think yourself worthy of the worship God alone deserves. If it ever starts to even become plausible in your mind, in our minds, that we deserve the kind of respect, reverence, devotion, acclaim that God alone deserves, then we are in an incredibly precarious position. Even God's messengers, angels, prophets, apostles. In scripture, when someone falls on their knees before them, within seconds, those messenger, messengers are always like, no, stop, get up, get up. I am just a human being like you are. Do not worship me, worship God. Herod, on the other hand, receives this. He receives it from these people as if it were true. And so immediately, verse 23, an angel of the Lord strikes him down. It's a very different death than James's death. One is a martyrdom. One is a death that is precious in the sight of God. And the other is a judgment directly from God. In fact, Acts chapter 12 is marked by a lot of contrasts. And perhaps you notice that as we have read and been looking at it. James's death and Herod's death, but also Herod's death and Peter's deliverance. An opponent of the gospel is judged while a proponent of the gospel is set free to continue on in his work. There's also the, the destructive power of Herod contrasted with the constructive power of God. Herod's violence his attempt to slow or stop the progress of the church, the progress of the gospel, is met by these triumphant words of verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. See, at, at face value, Herod's death can feel kind of like a detour in the book of Acts. Luke does not typically veer away from following the story of the church to tell you what happened in the lives of other people. But as Tim Keller points out, Acts is not so much the history of the church as it is the history of the church's mission, which is God's mission. And in that way, Herod's death actually fits perfectly with the rest of what Luke is saying here. How so? If you set yourself up against 
the work of God. If you oppose the advance of God's kingdom and you entrench yourself in that and you persist in that, if you especially exalt yourself to the place of God, then you will meet his righteous judgment. In the story of the world, one kingdom and one king prevail, and it will not be Herod, and it will not be any other earthly or worldly kingdom. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And men and women, let us work that refrain deeply into our souls, into our hearts and minds. Preach that good news to yourself over and over again. Because the Spirit of God empowers Jesus' church to advance God's mission, nothing can hinder the spread of the gospel. We've seen that already in the book of Acts. We'll see it again in the book of Acts, and we're seeing it right here in chapter 12, this refrain, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Apostles will die, but the word of God will increase and multiply. Apostles will depart, and they'll leave leadership in the hands of other people, and the word of God will increase and multiply. Persecutors and opponents like Herod and many more after him will arise, but the word of God will increase and multiply. And likewise, in our place, in our time, belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus will become unpopular, will become antiquated in the eyes of many, but the word of God will increase and multiply. The church will be pushed to the margins of society, but the word of God will increase and multiply. The visible church, church attendance across our nation, across our culture, will shrink when faithfulness to Jesus becomes incompatible with widespread cultural convictions and preferences. But the word of God will increase and multiply. And the main reason that we need this refrain worked into us is because we know not the specific story of our lives. We do not know the specific story of our lives. We know not the time or the circumstances of our death. See, for many of us, in the midst of all these contrasts in Acts 12, the most difficult one is not the contrast between Herod's power and God's power. It's the contrast between James's death and Peter's deliverance. Why is one apostle martyred and the other rescued? Why does God intervene miraculously for one, but not the other? Why does one meet an early end and the other live on to labor another day? We do not know. We cannot know. It's actually the point. Questions like that belong to the mystery of God's providence. What we do know is that nothing in this text or anywhere in Scripture indicates that Peter was better than James. Nothing hints that, you know, maybe if the church prayed for James the way they prayed for Peter, James would have been delivered too. They didn't even get the chance to pray for James like that. James wasn't sent to prison for a couple days like Peter was. James was just put to death. Faithfulness to Jesus and participation in God's mission will lead to different outcomes for different people. And with reasons, specific reasons, known to God alone, some will experience deliverance as a power, as a testament to the power and triumph of God, that his power is greater than the power of the kingdoms of this earth. Others will not be delivered. 
as a testament to the worth of Jesus, of sacrificing your life for his kingdom and for his cause, others will experience death much sooner. And this has always been the case for the people of God. The author of Hebrews in the famous Hall of Faith passage, Hebrews 11, sometimes referred to as the Hall of Faith, the author writes that some, quote, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Some received back their dead by resurrection. Some, not all, not all. Others, the author continues, were tortured, refusing to accept release, suffered mocking, flogging, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All of that, all of that serves to increase and multiply the word of God. All of that is valuable. But just like the saints in that great cloud of witnesses and the many generations since, we don't get to make the ultimate decision about which part we play with our own lives. What we can do, what we must do, is to pursue the mindset of the apostles, the mindset of these early Christians, to believe that because Christ has died and Christ is risen and that Christ will come again, that Jesus will be honored whether by our life or by our death. That Jesus will be just as glorified in James's death as he will be in Peter's deliverance. And then two decades or so later, when it's Peter's turn to die in Rome, and it's John's turn, James's brother, to go on living, albeit the last years of his life in exile, Jesus will be just as glorified in both of those outcomes as well. It's the Apostle Paul who goes on later to articulate this in the most succinct and memorable way in the book of Philippians. To live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Praise God for life. It means that we get to experience and participate in that much more of the increase of the multiplication of God's word in this world. At the same time, Praise God for death. Because in Christ, death means that we obtain the final outcome of our faith, the full experience of the presence of Jesus in his kingdom forever. See, church, in Jesus, you cannot lose. You cannot lose. Deliverance means more fruitful labor. means you get to be part of that for more years of life. And then death only means your ultimate deliverance. It only means ultimate deliverance. It means true and final rest from your labors. May you know this genuine freedom of the gospel. May you know that freedom. Whatever the length of your life, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because the word of God is increasing and multiplying, May our deliverances display the triumphant power of God's kingdom. And may our deaths display the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let me pray for us.
Father, by your power, you have raised Jesus from death to life. Through his victory over the grave, we are set free from the bonds of sin and the fear of death to share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. And we ask that we would even now, today, in this moment, experience, taste a little bit more of that freedom. Where we fear death, give us boldness that death is gain, that it only means rest from our labors, that it means our ultimate deliverance. Where we need deliverance in our lives, bring it, we pray, boldly and expectantly. Prepare us to be joyful when you intervene and when you answer our prayers. And in Jesus' rising to life, we're grateful for the promise of eternal life that you have given to all of us who believe in you. And so now as we come to this table, as we break bread in faith, may we know the risen Christ among us. And we pray that in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.